Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, verses 14 through 25. Stand for the reading of God's word. These are the words of God. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, dev- if you bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things you, that you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, cursing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Let's pray. Bless Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Galatians is one of Paul's letters written to address a crisis going on in the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a region in the southern part of Asia Minor, located in modern-day Turkey. What we can gather from the letter is that missionary Judaizers were were proclaiming a false gospel of justification by works righteousness, specifically circumcision of the flesh, contrary to the one only true gospel that Paul had already delivered to them, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 emphasizes the main thesis of the letter. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Because we are all born with sin natures, we are all prone to justify ourselves, and we would all be wise to heed Paul's aggressive call to focus on walking by the Spirit. There are a string of contrasts that plague the Galatians and still cause Christians today to struggle. We have law versus lawlessness, spirit versus flesh, self-love versus selfless love, faith versus works. And Paul delivers the antidote of walking and living by the Spirit to release us from the bondage to our fleshly desires and regain the lost fruit of the Spirit. Paul drives home the importance of the first of the fruit of the Spirit, love as being an essential to our walk with the Spirit. 
A more subtle note in the letter is an admonishment to flee from dissensions and factions, fueled by the vainglory and lack of love for one another. Clearly, the Galatians had fallen out of step with the Spirit and were at, were at risk of heading back under the curse of the law. Their freedom had turned into an opportunity for the flesh. Paul's admonishment is a timeless dose of wisdom for Christians of all generations as we struggle to steward our freedom well. Thus, what we can take from our text today is this. Christians need to exercise faith working through love by walking by and in step with the Spirit. In short, Christ has set us free. Don't attempt to re-enslave yourself to the bondage of the law. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin. Walk by the Spirit. Stop fighting amongst yourselves and bear one another's burdens. Love your neighbor and thus fulfill the law. So let's look at our text. In verse 14, Paul writes the same sentiment that is in the epistle to the Romans in chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, which is all the same sentiment that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, which is all an exegetical reference to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, and you shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Here we have New Testament, New Covenant authors, to include Christ himself, reaching out to an Old Testament, Old Covenant law, outside of the Mosaic law, stated as a fulfilling of the law. Clearly here we are to be law-abiding, even to Old Covenant laws, and not partake in sin, which is lawlessness. Verse 14 goes on to tell us that the fulfilling of the law is summed up in one word or statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man has an innate love of self built into his nature, and left to his own devices would pursue the desires of the flesh. Man's love for self often manifests itself as a violation of the Decalogue, where this self-love turns into envy, murder, stealing, lying, revenge, and dissensions. And the list goes on. Here we are told by God's law word to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is to say, in place of our self-love. We are told to take up our crosses daily and die to self and wholeheartedly love our neighbor in the ways we would normally love ourselves. When we do this, we will not be murdering, stealing, lying, or causing harm to our neighbor. We instead are lawful. We are fulfilling the law. We are in obedience to the law. And in that obedience, we are demonstrating love for God himself as we know it. As we know it was said in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will, and will, we will come to him and make our home with him. So here we see we cannot separate the love of neighbor from the love of God, and thus we are fulfilling the whole law. In short, to love God is to keep his law. And to keep his law is to love God. There's an inseparable love-law connection here. So here we see in the text we already have a heavy focus on the importance of love. In verse 15, Paul warns the Galatians not to bite and devour each other to the point of consumption or destruction. 
The false gospel of justification by circumcision is causing infighting, enmity, strife, dissensions, outbursts of anger, and the like. We have a preemptive concern stated that we're straying from the true gospel leads to a fulfilling of our sin nature and a return to lawlessness rather than a return, um, rather than a fulfilling of the law, and this ultimately leads to the destruction of the church. In verses 16 through 18, Paul depicts a daily battle of the desire of the flesh versus the spirit. As Pastor Jason mentioned in the Walking in Truth series, walking is a Hebraic way to describe one's conduct and living. Paul is telling us to posture our conduct and living in alignment with the spirit, and you will not give into your fleshly desires, the things that you naturally want to do, your sin nature. God's power is victorious over our sin natures. Here we also see that when we are led by the Spirit, we are no longer under the curse of the law, but rather under grace as law-abiding citizens. Verses 19 through 21 spells out a non-exhaustive list of deeds of the desires of the flesh. These are attributes that, left to our own devices, we will naturally embrace or fall prey to. Note here that Paul is not saying that if you ever give in to your fleshly desires and sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Rather, he's saying if you live an unrepentant life where you continually fulfill these desires, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Christians who love God, obey his law, and lead a normative life of obedience, not a normative life of disobedience. We aren't going to dive deeply into this list, but another thing to note that many of the deeds of the flesh listed involve the infighting that is going on in Galatia. This leads into verse 22, where we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here we have creation language taking us back to the garden, where Adam and Eve have access to the fruit of the Spirit daily. This was always the intention from the beginning. Adam and Eve were to walk in step with God in the garden and have access to the fruits Paul describes here. I want to point out as well that Paul lists love as the first fruit. We saw earlier in verse 14 a heavy emphasis on love, and we'll talk more on this later. Verse 24 drives home the point that those who walk by the Spirit will not carry out the desire of the flesh. They will not do the things that they want to. They are no longer under the curse of the law because they belong to Christ, and their flesh, their sin nature, has been crucified with Christ. It is dead and buried. In verse 25, we are told to walk in step with the Spirit. The Greek word for walking in step here is stoikeo. This word implies action. Walking in step is something you're always doing. I like that the LSB translates it walk in step as it means to be in rows. Walking in line is in marching in file to battle. When I hear the phrase walking in step, I think of rows of soldiers marching in step, which I believe that is the point that Paul is trying to drive home here. We have a daily battle with the flesh, and the spirit is our commander. We need to be in step with him. When rows of soldiers are marching in step together, they look clean, crisp. They look organized and disciplined. It's pleasing to the eyes, and it's intimidating to the enemy. In contrast, when soldiers are marching out of step, it looks chaotic, disorganized, and weak to the enemy. Additionally, when one soldier gets out of step, if he doesn't get back in step quickly, he can often start leading the rest out of step. 
So here we have Paul calling us as individuals to be in step with the Spirit, ready for battle, which in turn leads us all walking in step with each other. So how shall we then live? I want to focus in on the daily battle which is waging inside of us. It's spirit versus flesh. It's old man versus new man. It's our selfish desire versus our self-sacrifice. It's our self-love versus love of God. Temptations are only tempting because we want to do them. Paul tells us to align ourselves wholly with the spirit so that we don't do the things we want to do. The devil is crafty and modern day forbidden fruit is often disguised with a luscious exterior just the way we like it. Paul has focused in Galatians on infighting and sins of work righteousness, but his list of the desires of the flesh are broader in scope. One doesn't have to look far to see what happens when we give in to the desires of the flesh. We disguise the sin of pride with colors, with parades, with dancing, with drinking, with celebration and laughter. We worship ourselves, always unsatisfied with what God has gifted to us. We're piercing, inking, scarring, shaving, dying, burning, and mutilating our bodies. We even attempt to deny the very gender God has blessed us with. We are always seeking to destroy the image we were created in, to create a new image on our own terms. We celebrate pride, we celebrate sodomy, we celebrate fornication, we celebrate the abuse, the molestation, the trafficking, the manipulation, and even the murder of children. Our, pro- our political rallies have turned into rock shows with rock stars, where our would-be civil servants invite us to go up and go on tour with them, while shooting basketballs in the crowd with ACDC blasting loudly enough to deafen those nearest to the speaker. And if that's not enough, society and the state are aggressively after children who survive the mass murder. And they're pumping them full of lies fueled by the father of lies. They will gladly teach them to celebrate and embrace their sin nature as early as the church will allow them to. You do you. Make your own truth up, it's fine. The oasis of sin is nice, dip right in. And in a land of subjective truth, who can even say that anything we just mentioned is wrong? But we here at Cross and Crown know the wages of sin is death a just wage we all deserved in our depraved state. God is a just judge and demands justice, and left to our own devices, the desires of the flesh will sentence us to an eternity of God's wrath. But here's the wonderful part. Paul tells us the solution of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. God is also a God of mercy to the undeserving. And when we submit to the will of the Father, and become united with his spirit that dwells within us, we regain access to the lost fruit of the Garden of Eden in our new garden hearts. We now have access to the fruit of the spirit, the fruit that was intended for Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning. God was the gardener of Eden and is now the gardener of the hearts of his adopted children. Remember that the very first fruit that Paul mentions is love. As we discussed earlier, Paul makes a strong case for the love of God and neighbor as the solution to our predicament. Love is the primary fruit and so much hinges upon love. This isn't the cultural mushy love is love, not some arbitrary or temporary feeling that can fade over time, over two weeks or two months or even a couple years. Now this is is agape love. It's the self-sacrificial love. 
It's the love your neighbor as yourself love. It's the love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul love. The take up your cross daily and die to self love. This is the old man stays in the grave love. The mortify your sin love. This is the love of the Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. 1 John chapter 4, 8 states, The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. The desires of the flesh have no power when you are walking by and in step with the Spirit. As, the Spirit, as God's love is made manifest in you and will win the battle, as Paul lets us know by saying that we will no longer do the things that we want to do. There may be a daily battle going on, but the war has been won. Christ has claimed victory over Satan, sin, and death. And there is no greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for another. Christ died and descended into hell for us, but he didn't stay there. Now he went down to claim victory and rose triumphantly three days from the, from the grave later. Satan is powerless when it comes to God, and Paul is telling us to heed the spirit inside of us and allow him to work in us to defeat our own sin nature. You might say, that sounds great, but it's all very abstract. How do we walk by the spirit? How do we walk in step with the spirit? First, prayerfully feast on the word daily and marinate yourself with the word through, the memoriz through memorization until it pours out of you. Second, take your Bible for granted. Now, before you chase me away, what I mean by that is to take your Bible for assumed truth and act like it. Proclaim it boldly as truth and be doers, not just hearers or readers of the word. Third, pray without ceasing. Pray prayers of thanksgiving for all the wonderful things you don't deserve. Pray on how to pray. Pray for your family, your spouse, your children your mother, your father. Pray for other families, your brothers and sisters in Christ, inside and outside the local body. Pray for your local politicians. Pray for your enemy. Pray for conviction. Pray prayers of confession. Pray for the fruit to be made manifest inside of you. Pray for God's will in your life. Pray prayers of thanksgiving for all things throughout the day. In everything, give thanks and do all things with rejoicing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. I want to mention that it doesn't matter if you impress me or anyone else with your walk, though it is encouraging to hear. What matters is that you do unto the Lord with a loving heart. If you love God, you will obey his commandments. And the greatest commandment is to love God. It all comes back to love. If you love God, you will trust him, submit to him, and obey him. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China in the 1800s, said, To let my loving Savior work in me his will, my sanctification, is what I would live for by his grace. Abiding, not striving, nor struggling, looking oft onto him, trusting him for present power, resting in the love of an almighty Savior, in the joy of a complete salvation from all sin. This is not new, yet tis new to me. I feel as though the dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me. I hail it with trembling, yet with trust. I seem to have got to the edge only, but of a boundless sea. 
to have sipped only, but of what which fully satisfies. Christ literally seems to me, all, all seems to me, now the power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy. Not a striving to have faith, but a looking off to the faithful one seems all we need. A resting in the loved one entirely for time and eternity. The point Hudson is trying to make is an important one. We don't just try harder not to sin and try harder to do good. This is where the, the Galatians struggled with works righteousness, which led them back into the condemnation of the very thing they attempted to use to justify themselves, the law. We are to die to self and submit to the will of the Father more and more each day. We are to die to self and submit to the Father more and more each day. We are to stand firm in our faith and follow the guidance of the Spirit. Embrace your walk and gospel identity in Him. The battle truly belongs to the Lord. No king is saved by an army, and no warrior prevails by strength. Walk in step with your spirit commander, listening attentively and faithfully, and grow in your sanctification. The fruit of the Spirit is oftentimes misrepresented in today's culture. I was recently at a funeral with a lady pastor, said the deceased had little faith, but made up for it with her embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit, completely missing the irony that faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. There's a temptation to read this verse and to start justifying ourselves, reaching to ensure that we can see at least a little bit of each fruit is in at least a little bit of our lives. So let's stop to consider the antithetical fruits. Is your life defined more by a state of joy or a state of misery? Are you constantly in a state of peace or in a state of conflict, irritation, or fear? Are you patient with others or impatient and agitated? Is your default kindness and goodness or is it meanness, wickedness, badness, or immorality? Are you faithful to others? faithful to God, or are you full of dishonesty, disregard, and disloyalty? Would others describe you as gentle or unkind and harsh? Do you exhibit self-control, or are you prone to lash out, to instability, to rashness? Lastly is love. When I ask the students at GMU what the opposite of love is, they almost always say hate. The opposite of the action-backed love of the Bible isn't actually hate, it's indifference. So do you self-sacrificially love neighbor and God, or do you demonstrate indifference towards others with your actions? Indifference towards God with your actions. When we find ourselves in states of misery, conflict, fear, impatience, immorality, complaining, bitterness, dishonesty, disloyalty, rashness, or indifference, we have fallen out of step with the Spirit. This happens to every Christian at times as we are all prone to wander, prone to fall prey to the desires of the flesh. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3:23. Oftentimes we try to justify these behaviors rather than call them what they really are, sinful and unchristlike. We hide behind tough pasts, seasons in life, or other excuses that allow the sin to go unresolved 
which keeps us in a state of unrighteousness, where we find ourselves out of fellowship with Christ and out of step with the Spirit. When we sin, we are disciplined by our Heavenly Father, and what happens is we lose a bit of access to the fruit of the Spirit. If we don't deal with the sin, then we'll sin some more and some more, building up a pile of unrepentant sin. Till we're carrying around enough sin that we're embodying the antithetical fruit more than the fruit of the Spirit. This is where the mask can come come out at church and the subtle lies can sneak in that everything is all right when you can cut the tension um, in the air with a knife. There's something clearly wrong here, that unrepentant sin causes division. Division between the sinner and God, between the sinner and other Christians, between the sinner and their family, and we know that division can lead ultimately to the destruction of the church. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We cannot run the race with endurance when the weight of sin is holding us down. 1 John 1, verse 9 tells us, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to confess our sins and trust that our sins are indeed forgiven and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Or in other words, we are, to, we are restored to righteousness. No. When we confess our sins, we are restored to righteousness, and our righteousness is not that of ourselves. It comes from the indwelling of the Spirit. You see, when we confess our sins, we get back in step with the Spirit, back in fellowship with Christ and with each other. We are restored to a state of righteousness, and we are returned to a Christian's normative fruitful state. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Christ states, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A Christian's life should be one marked with repentance, as that's what keeps us in a state of righteousness, where we are satisfied by the fruit of the Spirit. A Christian's life should be one marked with repentance, as that's what keeps us in a state of righteousness where we are satisfied by the fruits, fruit of the Spirit. Dealing with sin is important, but we must confess our sins appropriately and offer forgiveness of sin, sins appropriately. Consider the life of Saul and David. I want to point out Saul's behavior when battling King Agag and the Amalekites from 1 Samuel chapter 15. Yahweh told Saul to spare no man or livestock from destruction. And what does Saul do? He spares Agag and the best livestock, and then he builds a monument to himself. Samuel rebukes him and asks him, why is there livestock in the camp? Saul says that the best sheep and oxen were spared to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, as if this justifies his disobedience of the command to destroy everything. Samuel then offers another opportunity for Saul to come clean. But Saul claims that he did obey Yahweh, and he attempts to pass the blame onto the people. Samuel lays down a harsher rebuke where Saul is finally cornered into confession. Now we all know the story of David and Bathsheba. David had Uriah the Hittite murdered to cover up the sin of adultery after finding out Bathsheba was pregnant. Here we have a direct violation of multiple of the Ten Commandments. 
However, David humbles himself and truly repents, and we can find his poetic repentance in Psalm chapter 51. God accepts his repentance, and David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. When we confess our sins, we need to be like David and humble ourselves, not like Saul, where we would attempt to justify our unchristlike behavior to each other, or even worse, to God. You may fool another Christian, but you will not fool the creator of the universe. God already knows your sin in your heart and wants to see you restored. There's a reason Martin Luther's first thesis of the 95 is to lead a life of confession. We are to humble ourselves, confess our sins to God first and then to each other, to our spouses, to our children, and to anyone we've trespassed against. A Christian's life should be one saturated with repentance where we look back and see a graveyard of sin buried with Christ and not a mountain of sin stalking us. A Christian's life should be one saturated with repentance where we look back and see a graveyard of sin and not a mountain of sin stalking us. This is how we get back in step with the Spirit when we fall out of step. In addition, we as humans tend to add our own scales to sin, but we are told in Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. We naturally look at David's sin as worse than Saul's in this case, and hold on to the memory of how awful the things David did were. But that's not what the Bible teaches and says. When we humbly confess our sins, it's as if the sin never occurred. And when someone confesses to us, we should have already forgiven them at the throne room and have forgiveness bundled up ready to go. We should be ready to restore fellowship with one another. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 states, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven you. Sometimes we have blind spots to patterns of sin we don't realize uh, we are doing or we have somehow rationalized this behavior. Um, we've turned these, these sins and we, we call them respectable sins, um, so to speak. We need to be asking the Spirit to help reveal these to us. Consider Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. One way the Spirit may reveal these blind spots to us is through each other. We are called to reprove one another and deliver truth in love. The in love portion is essential as we also don't want to fall prey to a speck log situation. And reproval delivered in love should be received in love. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 8. A final two thoughts on confession. Don't confess your temptations to each other. Give that up to God and move on. Don't tell Johnny that you confessed that you were considering not sitting next to him because he's really ugly. <laughs> this is a silly example, but I hope you see the point. We're not to dump on others to provide relief 
from our internal nastiness at the cost of hurting or causing our fellow brothers or sisters to stumble. Take that to the throne room. Next, if you're dealing with a complex situation of sin that's been unresolved for years, seek counsel before resolving it. This does not excuse you from confessing the sin, but you want to confess it in a wise manner, not a hasty manner, where it may cause additional damage to others. Consider a case of adultery that was not dealt with for years, but now you have children in the house and your marriage is in a much different place than it was before. God rightly demands first fruits of everything in your life, the preeminence of Christ in, um, in all of life. We covered many sins of commission, but there are also sins of omission. Here's a good way to evaluate if you are in step with the Spirit. When you receive praise or reward from others, do you immediately give the glory to God and to thank Him for giving you the resources and even the ability to achieve anything? When you are sick, do you immediately go to the Lord in prayer and trust that He has the power over sickness, that all healing comes from Him? Or do you go to the medicine cabinet or the doctor first? In hard times, do you immediately hit your knees in prayer to the Lord and trust that He is full of loving kindness? In easy times, do you remember to thank God for all the many blessings in your life? Do you seek the Lord with the first portions of your free time, or do you seek rest or entertainment? When you receive a paycheck, do you, go to, do you look to give to God before paying the bills, or before, before paying the entertainment fund? The love of God and His commandments should be so great in our lives that it pales the love for anyone or anything else in our life. Our relationship with the Lord is priority number one. Do you read the Bible, pray, and seek the Lord more than you are on social media, more than you watch TV or Netflix, more than you scroll the web, or more than you work out, more than you're on your phone, or more than you dedicate to entertaining yourself. You'll never hear a Christian say, man, I just read the Bible too much, or I really need to cut back on praying. When we lead a life of repentance, trust, and obedience, we demonstrate our love for God by standing firm in our faith. And we find ourselves in step with the Spirit. We find ourselves being fruitful as the Spirit produces fruit inside of us. We start to find ourselves, our families, and our community in step with the Spirit, prepared together to fight the battles of the day and bear each other's burdens. Our garden hearts start to form family gardens, which in turn forms a rich community garden. We begin imaging on earth as it is in heaven as the new local community garden provides a Sabbath rest from all the desires of the flesh, from all wickedness, from evil. We build a place to go to become refreshed and rejuvenated so that we can get to work making disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching them. We provide a place where we can welcome new believers into a sample of the eternal Sabbath rest that they have never experienced. The dissensions and works righteousness Paul warns against are thwarted, defeated by the power of the Spirit. The love that comes from the Spirit is the solution to evil that plagued the church of Galatia, and it's the solution to the evil that plagues the churches of today. Let's pray. Almighty God and most merciful Father, 
we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it. We ask that a seed sown in good ground it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen.